Hey, my name's Louis, and welcome to... I'm just going to go for it. Hey, I'm Louis, nutritionist and personal trainer, and it's my privilege to welcome you to Between Two Plates, the strength vitality podcast where we discuss everything between gym plates and kitchen plates to do with fitness, nutrition, and mental health. In this episode, we'll be discussing dementia, care and understanding with expert witness, author, educator, and independent nurse advisor, the mighty Lynn Fair. Lynn has had the most genuine and care-led journey to becoming an expert in the area of dementia, not only working in the care and nursing industry, but in pioneering and educating industry and individuals in how to better understand, care for, and progress care for those suffering with dementia. I am hugely interested in Lynn's journey and in gaining a better understanding of dementia. This podcast episode was fascinating to record and I truly hope that it serves as a resource to increase awareness and help those caring for members of our community with dementia. Whether you're a practitioner, family member, friend or patient, this one is for you. If anyone has any questions relating to any of the topics discussed in this interview, please don't hesitate to email me at louis at strengthvitality.com. Thank you again. And as ever, we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. You superstar. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well, Louis. Thank you. <laughs> All the better for seeing you, of course. Fantastic. Obviously, we have actually just been chatting, but we've got to keep up the pretense. Um, <laughs> you are here to talk to us today, which I'm very excited about and really appreciate it because it's definitely an area especially in the nutrition world where may, many people are in this because they're invested in helping people. Uh, we just don't know enough about this subject. Um, and I think it'd be really cool for everyone listening who cares about health uh, of themselves and those around to understand a little bit more about dementia. So we've called this dementia, caring and understanding. And you're here to help us. Thank you. If I can, I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll be, I reckon do my best. I reckon you can. So, Lynn, um, without further ado, maybe uh, you'd be okay giving us an introduction as to, um, I know you've told me this a couple of times, because um, I think it's <laughs> Hello, Jeff. How you get into... Yeah, if, you hear a dog, if you hear a dog barking, it's Jeff. <laughs> Jeff the dog. How you found yourself in the position you're in now, what that position is, um, and, and yeah, what, what you're doing. So that journey from where you were, to being an expert in dementia and, and what you're doing now, if that's okay. Wow. It's a very long journey, Louis, because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, 61 is the new 41, as I am always saying. So I've always been a nurse. My mum said that I, I wanted to be a nurse from the day I could speak when I was about two or three, but she doesn't know why I ever want, you know, why, but I did. And I, so I started, did my nurse training, did my general nurse training first and always preferred working with, with older people. Again, don't know why, I just did. And I certainly didn't like working in acute medicine. Blood and tubes frightened me. So I was very, you know, didn't want to do accident emergency and all that sort of stuff. And I was very happy working in stroke rehabilitation services down at um, in Eastbourne in a hospital called All Saints, which was down on the seafront, which uh, some of your local Eastbourne um, listeners might know about. And then I went off and did my mental health nurse training at a hospital called Helling Lye. So this was in the, uh, the early 1980s. And I stayed in mental health services. Um, and I think one of the one of the big reasons, and I know one of the reasons why I so enjoyed it, was because I uh, I realised that the tall of my trade was myself, 
that it wasn't a dressing or a machine or an amazing uh, technique. Uh, so much of what you do as a mental health nurse is give of yourself. Um, and it's about how you interact with people that can make the big difference. Um, and I was at Helling Lye and working in the mental health services for 20 years. And as part of that, I worked in, in the community, worked as a ward sister, worked as a senior manager, worked in Eastbourne Hospital and worked as a community nurse and got introduced to people with dementia. And um, so we're talking about the early 1990s now, which although, you know, I mean, I expect many of your listeners weren't even born then, but in those days, dementia was still called senile dementia and then okay. we were just about starting to talk about alzheimer's disease yet alone have a, an understanding of what it was all about that we have now um and i went to work in a in a resource center and was asked if i would you know look after people with dementia and i had no idea but when i went there i couldn't understand why they were treated so differently and all I kept saying is, well, but why? Just because they've got dementia, why can't they do this? Why can't they do that? We've got to find a way that people can do this. And then I got asked to write a book about it, which I did in the early 1990s. And, and sort of from that, it's, it's sort of grown, really. And it's, I then went to work in, uh, in a charity that got nursing and residential homes, which was much better because you don't get much blood and tube in a nursing home. So that's fine. So that sort of covered that problem. Um, but as, as my, uh, my career progressed, I then went back to the NHS and became a consultant nurse. And I started specialising in investigating abuse and neglect. So that has been my main focus of my work for the last 15 years. Care homes? Sorry? anywhere care homes or hospitals okay. so it was where there was a, a abuse or allegations of abuse or neglect of frail older people and people with dementia so my career has run alongside the sort of clinical practice and practice development educating nurses and care workers about good practice but also investigating um, allegations of abuse and neglect. And since I left the NHS in 2013, and I now work completely independently, that still carries on. So I'm a professional advisor for a care home company in Derbyshire, um, and I have worked with other care homes. Um, and I also work in education. I um, teach using the Montessori principles for people with dementia, which is very exciting and very new in this country. And I also still continue to do investigations uh, for the police, coroners. I do work for the Court of Protection um, into what might be in someone's best interest if there's a dispute about where they should live, for example, which is what the Court of Protection work is. Or if there's concerns about care and whether someone was neglected, which is the work I do for the police and health and safety executive and the coroners. So I never had a career plan. I think um, it was just about when a door opened or was a little crack in a door and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And, and I went through it. And, and that's so my, my career has not been a great plan at all. It's just taken me along this rambling by road of 43 years of nursing which is where I end up, where I am now. Yes! Which is working for myself and uh, having the opportunities to talk to people like you. 
Yes, Lynn. Yes. I love that as well. I love that journey through just taking opportunities and then finding yourself at what everyone would define as a success, at a successful position. Didn't all have to be mapped out. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be mapped out. Um, and I certainly, you know, along that journey, I, I was a very average, very averagely educated. I just about got my five O levels as we needed in the seventies to do my nurse training. And then, when I was a ward sister, I then did my diploma and degree in nursing one day a week for four years while I was still working full time as a ward sister four days a week. One day a week, I did my university course at Brighton um, and got my degree and then went on and, and did my master's. So it's, it's which I did part time whilst having three children and working full time as well. So you know, it's it's about taking opportunities, really. And I think that all the way through, I can I can absolutely track back. Not that I, I would go of it now because it would send all your listeners to sleep, but I absolutely can relay every single point of what, you know, how did I get into expert witness practice? I know exactly how I did some 30 years ago, what happened. And it was all about... When someone said, are you interested, instead of, oh, no, 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 I'm not, it was, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, being frightened and, you know, not having the confidence to but other people believing in me um, and then taking that first step. And I think that that's the biggest thing I would recommend to anybody, you know, is that is that if there's a little door open, just push it a little wider. And when I first wrote my very first article because uh, I had quite a lot of things published in in nursing journals and I've written a few books and that sort of stuff and I absolutely can remember my first article I wrote it and sent it off and didn't tell anybody because I thought to myself well the only person that will know is the person at the other end at the you know the nursing journal that reads it and they'll read it and think that was a load of rubbish and it'll get put in a bin so no one else will know so it won't matter um, and so when they came back and said, oh, yes, we want to publish this, it was like, are you sure? Really? You want to publish it? But it was that having that courage, I suppose it's courage, people would say. But also it was the knowledge that actually, well, no one else really knows about it. So that's all right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and then things move on from there and one thing leads to another. So my work as dementia has become more greatly recognised um, my skills and knowledge about dementia have increased. I, um, working for the charity in the, in the late 1990s, uh, I won a travel scholarship and went around the world looking at the design of nursing homes for people with dementia to see what was really making the difference. Was it the design or was it the care that they received? Um, and so my knowledge has, has developed. But as a nurse, it's always been very much about that nurse and how that interfaces, how that marries up with people's quality of life. So I'm not a nurse um, that would sit, I don't sit easily in, in a medical ward, for example. Um, I'm not that sort of a nurse. There are many sorts of nurses. Um, and I do bring my general nursing and my mental health nursing, along with what I've learned from social workers, into the mix. And it is very much about understanding people as a whole and their health needs their physical needs and their emotional needs Lynn, so that's where i've got what i've got 
That is incredible. You and in that you said something where I was like, wow. You were like, yeah, um, I've just like I've written a few articles and I wrote a few books, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, I've written I've written a few books. That's amazing. <laughs> so Lynn, what is for for those of us who are laymen in this area, what is what is dementia? What do we call it? Okay. Right. Now, the first thing that we we use the word dementia in exactly the same way as, uh, you know, you call a vacuum cleaner a hoover or you call a ballpoint pen a biro. Right. Dementia is actually not a term. It's not a correct term. Okay. It's a term that we all use. It's a term that we all use, which is fine. It's an umbrella term. Um, but there are over a hundred different sorts of dementia. Yeah. So, so, um, and so you, you will get a, not everybody, everyone's dementia is different because they might have a different type of dementia and B, everyone's dementia is different because we are all different people. Um, and also our personalities are different. Our life experience is different and it might be, it might be affecting different bits of our brain. So you've got, the four main, there's four most common, so Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia, which, it, you know, many people have, have heard of. And there's also a dementia called vascular dementia. I'll come back to these in a minute. Okay. And then there's frontal temporal dementia. And then there's what's called Lewy body dementia. Those are the most common types of dementia. But then you can also get dementia, early onset dementia. Um, so um, the author Terry Pratchett had a dementia which was poster, post, posterior, posterior cortico dementia, which affected the back of his head. Now he was a famous, some of your listeners will have read his books, um, very famous author. And he, he lost the ability to read and type. His memory was absolutely fine, but the first thing that went was his abilities to read and type because his eyes, he could still see, but his brain couldn't translate what he was seeing. So that's a more, that's a rarer type of dementia, but uh, one that, you know, people like um, Terry Pratchett um, had and, and a few other fa more famous people have had as well. So Alzheimer's disease is probably the most common. And that is where you get a general deterioration and, and shrinking of the brain and you get what's called tangles and plaques in the cells of the brain. So basically, because there's too much of a type of protein in the brain, it stick, the cells stick together and the messages don't start uh, crossing over. It's a degener degenerative condition. So it's not the same as if somebody had a, uh, you know, fell off a ladder and hit their head and has an acquired brain injury, whereby the injury was done, damage is done, damage is fixed. Dementia is a degenerative condition. All right, the brain continues to die. It is, if you think of the brain as an organ, it's like having heart failure or kidney failure or liver failure, which we've all heard of. Dementia is brain failure. Right, That's okay. another easy way perhaps of thinking about it. It's where the brain is starting to fail. Cells are dying. And if the cells die, 
sometimes you can find another way for the brain to learn to do something but eventually the brain loses that ability to do things now the other most common type of dementia is vascular dementia and this is where you get little tiny tiny you know microscopic we're talking about little strokes now you've all heard you've heard of a stroke um, or a TIA, a mini stroke. Um, and with vascular dementia, it's the cause is where you're getting a, 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 a disruption to the blood supply of the brain and you get little tiny, tiny, tiny strokes and the brain can start looking like a pepper pot, little specks of pepper, which is where little tiny bits of the brain are dying. And that is most common cause of that is where you've already got heart disease or diabetes that's not very well looked after. Okay. So they don't know what causes Alzheimer's disease. They're, they're, the research is still working on it. Um, and um, they don't know what causes like um, uh, Lewy body disease, which is where it's at the back of the brain, the same bit of the brain that gets affected by Parkinson's disease. But it's important these days to try and work out what type of dementia someone's got, because then you can work out what impact it's going to have. Okay. When I started my, you know, in the early days when I was a ward sister, even, you know, CT scans were just being invented. It was all done on observing somebody. Nowadays, you have CT scans, you have MRI scans. They've now developed new types of scans that actually show the neurons which transmit the messages um, and what, how they're affected. So it is, I think, the most important thing to hold on to, and this is incredibly difficult when it is your loved one. It's easy when you are distant from somebody, but when it is your loved one, it is the hardest thing in the world. And I know this, my dad had vascular dementia, so I absolutely know what it's like. But if the person has lost the ability to, let's say, remember something, by continuing to ask them if they can remember is not going to help. Okay. So if you've got somebody, you know, if you've got somebody who's, who's, um, who's had, uh, let's say, an acquired brain injury or they've had a car accident and they've lost the use of their legs and they're in a wheelchair, you wouldn't spend your life asking them if they can just try and let's see if you can stand up today. We would accept they're paralysed, they can't stand up, so they're in a wheelchair. And what we have to try and do is adopt that same outlook it's no good keep testing somebody about what the date is. If they've got no idea what day it is or what year it is, the reason they've got no idea is because that bit of their brain is dying. And just by keep asking them, you might be making yourself more frustrated and making them more frustrated. That comes from a place really of hard. understanding. Yeah, it can lead to misunderstanding. And actually... Why do we need to know the date anyway? You know, we need to know the date because we live in a world which is on a treadmill of, you know, I've got an appointment with you at two o'clock and if I don't know it's Monday, I won't know to call you. But actually, that's the only reason I know it's Monday. And, you know, I don't know about you, Louis, but through lockdown, I was absolutely had no idea what day of the week it was or what 
you know, I don't know where April went. April, May, they don't <laughs> exist in 2020 for me. You know, because every day I did the same thing. I went for a walk and I chatted with my husband and <laughs> did bits and bits, you know. But I wasn't thinking, oh, it's Tuesday the 3rd of April or whatever. That means I must be, you know, doing whatever. So so it's about thinking, does it matter? Yeah. And that's a big thing to, to always think about. If, you're, if, you, if you've got a loved one who's got dementia of any, any sort, these are, these are general principles now about, about anyone with dementia. Think to yourself, does it matter if they can or can't remember that thing? So if you're wanting them to remember something, it's got to be because it's important to them, important to help them to live, um, or, or, you know, they need to remember for a certain reason, like taking medicines, for example. Right. But that's, that's, a, that's the first thing I think I would say to people is actually just ask yourself, does it matter if they don't know something? It, it sounds like that that like what you're doing with educating people about dementia is so crucial because the care that they receive is going to be so prudent on the people caring for them understanding that because with a misunderstanding and i like i could totally say that i would be the same you're like right, what we need to do is train you at remembering it but your analogy of being like you wouldn't say to someone in a wheelchair let's try standing up today so no, let's move on and be practical in how we approach this. Stop trying to get them to yeah. do something which is degenerated, I guess. Yeah. Now that's not to say that you can't train someone to do something. Okay, cool. Uh, if it's really important. So, but it will depend on where they are on their journey. Because the fact that, so it's not like when you're doing rehabilitation following a car accident where you're building somebody back up what you're doing is you're helping them to stay as good as they can be while they're at that point because their brain is dying, the heart is dying or the kidney is failing or it's an organ that's failing. So you can help people to be as independent as possible for a time. So for example, it might be that, um, let me, I'm just trying to think of an example now. So you've got somebody living at home and they're forever saying, um, what time, you know, um, Louis, where's Louis gone? Where's Louis gone? I'm saying, where's Louis gone? When's Louis coming back? And the person there is, you know, saying, oh, Louis's gone to work. He'll be back at five o'clock. Where's Louis gone? Where's Louis gone? You know, so it might be that a way of helping them is for, to write it on a card, Louis has gone to work he'll be home at five o'clock and make sure there is a clock where the person can see. So what you do is when they're saying, where's Louis, where's Louis? You just say, Louis's gone to work. Look at your card. So what you're doing there is training them to look at the card. And by repeating that, it's called repetitive priming. You know what it's like. It's about training the muscle training or training anything. Repeating, repeating, repeating. Louis's gone to work. Look at your card, it will tell you what time he's coming home. Don't get angry because it's the first time for that person that they've asked the question. Yeah. Because that person can't remember that they only asked it two minutes ago. So your big challenge is to just take a deep breath and think, they can't remember, they just asked me. So you say, look at the card, it'll tell you where Louis is. And they look at the card, Louis is at work, 
he'll be home at 5.30. And they can see the clock in their eye shot because it's no good having a clock behind them because they might not remember to turn around. Oh, is there a clock in the room? Oh, yes, it's over there. They won't have that sense. So there are things that you can do. You can put signs on things. If you've got someone living at home, um, put signage on things. This might sound a bit daft, but make sure the sign is clear. So don't use fancy writing. Use Arial or a, a very clear, easy to read font and put it on a contrast with the colour paper. So it could be black on bright yellow paper is really good, but it could be black writing on white or it could be green writing or white writing on green. And the sign just needs to be as big as for the person to be able to see it. Cool. So a friend of mine, um, a couple of years ago, living with, her, living with dementia, she had a, they had a new kitchen fitted and her husband said she can't find anything in the new kitchen. So we put some signs up and it just said, just small signs, discreet small signs, but one said saucepans, plates. So cool. her husband told me what things she was losing and we just put those signs up. She couldn't remember how to turn on the uh, um, um, extractor fan because it was new. So we put a, I've made a sign that had on button with an arrow pointing to the on button. And what amazed me was that when I was with her, she never said, who's been putting all these signs around my kitchen, which I expected her to do. She didn't say that at all. Wow. She just said to me, oh, where's the saucepans? Now I know they're around here. And I watched her scan around with her eyes the kitchen. She saw the sign that said saucepans and she went straight to the saucepan cupboard. Yes, and when I and I said to her, "How does this? How does this? How does this extractor fan work?" And this looks modern and posh. And she and I watched her eyes, and her eyes scanned along the buttons. And she saw the sign that said "on," and she pushed it. And she said, "There you go. That's how it works." Yeah, so what you're doing is you're you're putting something in place of what's missing in their heads. So the person who's who can't use their legs. You've put in place something to help them be mobile, which is a, a wheelchair. So what you're doing is you're thinking, what what has this? What's dementia affected? What's it taken away from my friend or my mum or my husband or whatever? What do I need to put in place? So it might be that the reason that they are getting undressed, or you know, they're getting dressed in a muddle, or they're just not managing to get dressed anymore, is because they can't find the clothes in the cupboards in their bedroom. So they stop getting dressed because actually they get so fed up because they can't work out what it is they're looking for. So it might be by putting labels, and sometimes you might do a label with the word, say, jumper and a okay. picture of a jumper. Put that on the cupboard where the jumpers are. And that helps to guide people. It's a visual cue and sign. And if people could read before they got dementia, they will be able to read for a long way through their journey. So if English isn't their first language, it might be that the sign would need to be in the language that was their first language, if they've lost the yeah. ability to read or speak their first language. 
So it might be that if English wasn't their first language and they reverted to speaking Spanish, if that was their first language, then do the signs in Spanish. Right. So that's a, and also if they've started perhaps occasionally being incontinent, it might be it's because they can't remember where the toilet is. So right. think about when, you know, if you're sitting in the lounge or they come to stay with you, let's say, you know, you've got your grandmother who's come to stay with you for a couple of weeks. When you're sitting in the lounge, think about how will she know where the toilet is? How can I help her be independent? So it might be, it might seem a bit daft, but actually put a sign up in your lounge, in your sitting room with an arrow, toilet and guide it up the stairs, toilet. And she will follow those signs and find the toilet. So there's very practical things that you can do. Um, that it's about what we say is if it's not in here, if it's not in your head, put it out there. Cool. So if it's not going on in your head anymore, put it out there in the environment. Um, because what happens, generally speaking, regardless of which type of dementia, is that what we call procedural memory. So things that are really, really hardwired into our brains will still be there. And it's the declarative memory. It's our knowledge. It's names. It's new, inf relatively new information that we lose that they lose first. So this is why you often hear, don't you? People say. They, you know, they can't remember what day of the week it is, and yet they can remember all the songs they learned when they were at school. And that's the reason why. So you've got someone who can drive a car. They can still drive the car. They can still, you know, start it up, change gear, do all of that, because that's hardwired into us, isn't it? When you've been driving a car a while, I don't expect you can remember you know whether you've left it in gear or not gear and now i'm asking you the question you're thinking is my car in gear or isn't it because it's so automatic to us that's because it's now in your procedural memory but finding uh finding your way finding where you've parked it in a car park or uh saying oh let's drive to uckfield that might be a little more difficult unless you've done that journey yeah. every single day and it's hardwired so this is why you get people that, and you hear people say, I don't understand it because, you know, they can't do this and yet they can drive their car. Yes, they can do the mechanical bit of driving their car, but can they actually do the distance judging? Can they actually stop at a junction and remember to judge what cars are doing coming, right. you know, going by with traffic lights and that sort of stuff? It's, it's really interesting how almost two be an effective supporter of someone who has dementia it requires you to do something which i think at the moment lots of people are trying to get more people to do and that's mindfulness so for example you're talking about the car it's okay or going to the bathroom that's something that we probably don't even think if you like what are the steps you take going to the bathroom it forces you to go okay i get up out of the chair i look over there i reach for the door so there's almost in a really in a really interesting way this like to support people with dementia the best is also something that maybe we all need to be doing a little bit ourselves for our own mental health yeah yeah i think that's very true if we're starting to think about and thinking about what's important to ourselves will be important to someone with dementia so 
you know, what has been one of the, for some people, it's been wonderful, the lockdown. For other people, it's been horrendous because have you had a reason to get up in the morning? Right. People who are currently wondering whether they're going to have a job. Okay, we've got the financial side of the worry about having a job, but actually it's having that sense of purpose. It's having that sense of value. It's having that sense that why did so many people offer to volunteer to help more vulnerable people during the lockdown? It's because we want to help. Yeah. Humans want to help. So another important thing is not to take things away from someone with dementia simply because they have a diagnosis of dementia. What do you mean? Well, so you often see, oh, they, you know, they've got a diagnosis of dementia now, so they can't, they, I, I, I see this, this is in care homes, well, they can't possibly help to chop vegetables. Okay. They might cut themselves with a knife. They can't possibly go outside and help the maintenance men mow the lawn. They can't possibly dig the rose beds. They can't possibly help change the oil on a car because they've got dementia. Well, actually, no. They've got a diagnosis of a degenerative condition. And it might be at some point they can't do that anymore. Yeah. But don't take it away simply because they have a diagnosis of dementia. Think about what they can still do. Think about their strengths. And if they can't do one thing, is there something else that they can do to help? We all need to feel helpful. So by asking somebody, oh, I wondered if you, could you help me just do the dusting? Could you help me put the carpet yeah. sweeper around? The hoover might be too heavy for them. Then get a carpet sweeper. The lawnmower might be too heavy, or you're, you, know, you really are worried they don't get the idea of electric cables anymore. Get a push-along mower that you can get from Argus for 25 quid because that's what we've done in a lot of our, in our care homes so that the residents have a sense of purpose. It's fantastic. They have a reason to get up in the morning, which we all need as humans. We all need a reason. We all need to feel that sense of community. You know, I'm sure your listeners have been to visit friends or family and you go along and uh, uh, somebody's in the kitchen working 19 to the dozen and you can hear pots and pans being crashed and swear words and things dropping and you're sitting there in the dining room, in the lounge and you say, can I give you a hand at all, Louie? And you say, no, 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 everything's fine, thank you. And you sit there feeling useless and embarrassed and thinking, I'll be quite happy to go out and peel the potatoes, but want me so that makes you feel makes me feel useless because Louis doesn't need me to peel the potatoes when I can hear him really struggling these are human needs and human tendencies it doesn't change these are these are about us being human so someone with dementia does not stop being human so find things for them to do a great thing uh, if someone's quite a long way down the journey and you know is, is finding things difficult is folding things people like folding they like order we like to put things away yeah okay my office here is a bit of a tip but actually we like to sort things out so you know if you've got you your dad with you ask him if he could help sort out this box of nuts and bolts because he used to be a mechanic 
So put some nuts and bolts, clean ones, you know, but put some nuts and bolts in a box and say, Dad, could you give me a hand? I've got these nuts and bolts need sorting out. Give him two boxes, put one nut in one, one bolt in the other, and you're asking him, will you help me? Would you help me, Dad, to do this? Because, you know, I've got them in a muddle. He could sit there and sort. You could make it more complicated by nuts and bolts and screws. If they're, you're, But you don't want to make it too complicated, but you don't want to make it patronising either. So you yeah. might need to make those sort of judgments as you go on. But he has a sense of purpose. Now, if he's quite a long way along the journey, and Sorry tomorrow... To interrupt you, but when you refer yeah, sure. to the journey, what, for some... I've got two questions, and I hope this doesn't interrupt yeah. the train of thought. But no, no, it's okay. my idea, how early on in life can this begin, and then how long can we expect it to go on for? Oh, those are big questions. Okay. Depending, I mean, there are some type, there are some very, 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 very rare types of dementia that people can get in their thirties and forties. Okay, these are usually genetic, and they are very rare. Okay, but if we're talking about um, you know, and, and you can get people with Alzheimer's that get it in their, uh, you know, early 60s. Um, how long it can last is how long is a piece of string. But they say 10 to 15 years. But if you get uh, vascular dementia, which might well be caused through diabetes or heart disease, that sometimes can take people very quickly within two or three years and sometimes people can live for 10 12 years right, okay. so the journey that we that's why we talk about the journey because and this is why it's also very different to other diseases because if people are diagnosed with cancer these days people the doctors are able usually able to say yeah your scan shows that you know 90 percent chance of recovery or they might say you've got stage four cancer, we can't treat it, and we think you've probably got six months to live. But sadly, we hear those things all the time, don't we? You can't do that with dementia. It's not possible because what they can't predict is which bits of the brain are dying and which order they will die. So it's not possible okay. to say. Okay. Uh, it's not possible to say you've got a diagnosis. I am, you know, 60 years old. I've got the diagnosis of dementia. I'm the chances are I'll be dead in five years. We've got, um, you know, the sports personalities recently who've been on the telly, Dougie. Um, I can't remember his name. He's the Scottish rugby player and he's got motor neurone disease and uh, he was on sports personality. And, you know, they were talking about motor neurone disease and saying on average it's two to three years that people prognosis can't do it with dementia. Okay. Dougie Weir, that was his name. So uh, the journey is, is, um, is, is just the word, is the term we use because people move, it is a journey. Okay. And we don't know, um, we, we, you know, you don't know how long that journey is going to be. So it's about always thinking about uh, what can we do. So if someone, someone used to enjoy reading books, for example, this is another good example, or the newspaper. Now it might, and they stop reading. It, and the perceived wisdom is that the reason they've stopped reading is because they've lost the ability to read. 
But what the research is now coming out is that actually it's not necessarily because they can't, they've lost the ability to read. It might be that actually there's too much information on the page. The book is too big. They can't remember the story. They can't concentrate for long enough. A magazine, it might be the font is wrong, so their brain can't interpret it. Or there's pictures and tiny writing. There's too much information, so it's confusing. So just because they can't read what they used to read, yeah. don't assume that it means they can't read. And it might be that you can, you know, find, say they enjoy poetry, for example. No reason why you can't go online, download some of their favourite poems or lyrics of a song, enlarge them so that they're nice and big, change the font so it's a simple font, an aerial font, and print them off and i bet they'll be able to read them yes we'll give we do um, you know we, we do books now we write books um uh which um are books written specially for people with dementia and we are constantly being told i didn't think my mum could read anymore and we sat together we sat together and read this book um they're quite short books they are factual books um, but they're books that enable and encourage conversation and reminiscence. So, um, uh, other examples, I'm sorry, I'm waffling here a bit, Louis, but other right, examples, right, right. Um, it might be that some person really loved baking and they were, you know, did amazing cakes. Well, they might not be able to do amazing intricate cakes anymore, but they might still be able to, weigh out the ingredients and mix them with a mixer a simple sponge for yeah. example it might be that actually they can't weigh out the ingredients anymore because they can't operate the scales but they can still do the mixer it might be that actually they can't do the mixer and they can't weigh out the scales but they can stir it with a big spoon cool. so think about what someone can still do Think about sensory things. Think about sights and sounds. Don't overload somebody because another problem for people with dementia um, at all sorts of points along the journey and actually even in early stages when someone might appear to be absolutely fine is that their brain can't cope with too much information at once. Okay. So a friend of mine, my best friend, her dad has vascular dementia. He finds going to restaurants and pubs really difficult. He used to love it, but with a lot of noise that you get, his brain can't cope with it. So then he gets flustered because he can't work out what's going on. So they try and make sure they go to small venues or sit outside where there's not so much uh, overstimulation. So, you can there's lots of things that you can be thinking about you know too much to really say in a podcast like this but there's lots of things if people enjoy doing crosswords then think about giving them more simple crosswords but not so simple that they're patronizing but that they're what we tend to call failure free so it's a trial and error thing, working out where they are. Jigsaw puzzles. You can buy jigsaw puzzles that have a, an, an adult picture. And I don't mean an adult picture in the sense <laughs> of a nude. 
I mean, an adult picture that someone would enjoy looking at. Or great things these days is where, you know, you can go to do these photo online photograph companies and they do jigsaws. So do a picture that you know, you know, a picture that you know they would enjoy. Let's say the person loves trains. Get a picture of a train, upload it onto one of those websites that will make jigsaw puzzles and choose the number of pieces that the piece person will succeed at. Cool. You know, it might be, you know, they used to do 2,000 word jigsaws, 2,000 piece jigsaws. They now couldn't possibly do that. But they might be able to do a 100 piece jigsaw. They might be able to do a 50 piece jigsaw. One lady I was working with, do you know how many pieces her jigsaw puzzle had? Two pieces. Two pieces. Her family said she can't do jigsaws. She loves doing jigsaws. And what did I do for Joy? I, she loved tigers. I found a picture of a tiger on the internet, printed it off, laminated it, and cut it in half. And I said, Joy, I wondered if you'd do this puzzle with me. Will you, will you help me? So she was doing it for me. Yeah. Oh, she said, yes. Do you know, it took her five minutes. She was looking at these two pieces. She was studying these two pieces. And you could see her working out, how am I going to do this? Five minutes. She pushed them together. Yes. Oh, joy, that's beautiful. And then we talked about the picture. So, and that's failure free. Genius. You see, that makes something failure free. So the other key thing to remember is what's happening with any type of dementia is often the brain is struggling to process information. So we're talking now and, you know, you say something, I respond. You ask me a question, hopefully my brain knows what you're asking me. What happens with dementia is that, and this isn't in everybody, so this is, again, you have to think about it may happen with some things, but not others might happen with some people and not other people. Is the brain takes longer to work out what's being asked of them or work out what's being said. So you have to ask the question in simple language or whatever it is that you're wanting to do and then wait for an answer. And five seconds, so I've said to you, Louie, would you like a cup of tea? And it takes you a good five seconds. Now, how long is five seconds? I'm going to time you now, and you'll just see how long five seconds is. I don't want you to speak, because I've got a big clock here. Louie, would you like a cup of tea? Yes. <laughs> how long five seconds is? Yeah. Right? And that's really hard because we are so used to asking because what I would do, and I've had to train myself to do this because what I would do normally, I say, Louis, did you want a cup of tea? Louis, did you want a cup of tea? We feel it, don't we? Instead of thinking, yeah. your brain needs that extra time to process that information. That is brilliant. That makes total sense as well. There are... Uh that does like i mean this is fascinating every single thing you're saying um 
and I think I love the what everything that's coming through is the relationship between the person and the patience between the person and the person living with dementia. It's a, it's such an interesting experience and how they both sort of get into this same space of patience and understanding. Um, with, with when we're talking about dementia and, and you were saying about like the risks and when people get it and they you do have these sort of genetic when people might get it really early. Are there if we said that typically someone was to get dementia later on in life, are there signs perhaps earlier than that in life that we can start to screen for dementia? Well, they are now sort of saying that they think they might be able to start doing some things okay. like that. And they are saying that, uh, but I'm, I, I, there's nothing that, that we, you know, that's out there in the okay. general in the, in the general world and certainly, you know, in any everyday world at the moment. Um, so it's just, it is, you know, that, that, uh, that Russian roulette at the moment in terms of Alzheimer's particularly, um, just because, uh, you know, your mother or your grandmother had it does not mean you're going to have it. If you've got a very, very, very rare type of dementia, they will do genetic testing if you okay. want it. But those are the very, very, very rare types of dementia. Um, with thing, now, with vascular dementia, I wanted to just talk a bit about that, Louis, if that's yeah. okay. Because yeah. vascular dementia is something that we can do something about to try and reduce the risk of getting it. Okay. And in fact, uh, so because vascular dementia has the same risks attached to it as heart disease. And, and actually these things also do apply to, to Alzheimer's disease to a certain degree. But what are the important things in life we need to try and do? We, know, we need to try and take exercise and be as fit as we can be. We need to try and eat healthily and enjoy the pleasures of life in moderation. We need to try and stimulate ourselves mentally and enjoy doing things that will keep our brain active. Whatever that happens to be, that might be, uh, you know, Sudoku or a crossword puzzle, but it might actually be reading. It might be just really thinking about the environment you're in. We, it's important we get fresh air. So all of those things that actually uh, we need to not drink too much and we need to stop smoking are the other things, aren't they, that they're always telling us. Yeah. Those things apply to helping reduce the risk of getting vascular dementia and to a certain degree Alzheimer's disease in exactly the same way as they apply to heart disease. And the other important factor is if you have conditions such as diabetes, type 1 or type 2 diabetes, or heart disease or kidney disease, look after it and do what you're supposed to do to help reduce the risk of getting the complication of vascular dementia. So if you've developed type 2 diabetes and you're overweight, it's not just about now that you're losing weight for and as we now know that you know there is hard research now which actually shows you can reverse your type 2 diabetes can't you by losing weight and getting fit it's not just about saying oh look at me I'm 50 and I've lost three stone it's not about it in fact yeah that's one good reason but actually 
it's also really important because if you don't, there is a higher risk that when you get to, you know, 60, 70, 75, 80, that you develop vascular dementia because your um, blood vessels will be damaged, you'll be de developing the cardiovascular symptoms and things. So managing your diabetes and your heart disease by doing all of those things that we do for those that do we should be doing to, to reduce the risks of those or manage those conditions help will also be helping with reducing the risk of you getting vascular dementia in the future you said it would help reduce the um risk of alzheimer's and excuse me if i've misunderstood but if so I, I, I think that you said earlier that Alzheimer's is one where we're not entirely sure of the, uh, perhaps mechanistically of it. Was that, yeah, so are we, yeah. when you're saying that the healthy lifestyle might mitigate the risk of Alzheimer's, is that something we observe or is that something that we can put some sort of mess, mechanistic underpinning to? No, that with Alzheimer's, that is just uh, a general observation that actually, you know, anything we can do, must be helpful with vascular dementia there are clear yes clear links um that's not to say that people who have diabetes will get vascular dementia that's not what it says at all i don't want people to be frightened um but it's about thinking you know managing these other conditions that we have is really very important not just for that condition but for the future yes yeah 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 and it makes it very practical and tangible which is nice yeah and hopefully it gives people another reason and incentive to be you know wanting to stay as fit as possible and and uh, um you know enjoying life as much as possible because that's what's important lynn are there um clear links so it seems to be the conversation within the world of contact sports uh is becoming more and more on the health of the head and concussion do we have clear links between um concussions or sports where there would be like impacts to the head and um dementia well i know that there are um there is some research going on isn't there about people uh, footballers particularly okay. and the increased risk i think there has been some uh, evidence to show that people men particularly i mean it will be women in the future but men particularly um, have increased risk of getting dementia if they were footballers i haven't read the research um and uh, but i know that that's one of the reasons why they, they i think they stopped uh, youngsters heading the football didn't they wow. to try and reduce the okay. risk of concussion I think, but I'm not really up to speed with that. But I think there has been some, some re there is research going on at the moment to see what risk, if there are risks, increased risks through to footballers who've headed, you know, in the heading of the football. And there's research going on at the moment, but I don't know the detail of it, to be honest. Okay. Could, could, could something like a, uh, a, a, a trauma to the head then, like you were saying earlier, you can get trauma to the head, then there's damage, and then it's like, boom, that's it. Can you get trauma to the head, and can that almost catalyze a deterioration of the brain? It can do. I think that there are people who have had a, an acquired brain injury who then go on to develop okay. dementia because the rest of the brain starts to, to fail. 
the other uh, the, the other group of people that um, it's that it's become um, evident are more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease is people with Down syndrome. Okay. Um, but it's it's more common, and they sadly uh, develop Alzheimer's. Not everybody, but um, more more at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease in their you know late forties, early fifties. Um, it's a great celebration for people with Down syndrome that um, so many are now living, you know, into adulthood, having great fulfilled lives. Um, and this is possibly one of the reasons why there are now more people with Down syndrome getting dementia, Alzheimer's disease, because more people okay. are living longer. Exactly the same as, as older people, actually, you know, that, there's, that, that we think we've got an epidemic of dementia my personal view is I don't know that it is necessarily an epidemic of dementia. People are living longer. Yeah. People are being cured, thankfully, of stroke and of, of heart disease and of cancer and are getting older. Right. So we're having more people. I mean, how many more? You know, there's, I don't know the figures, but there's loads now, aren't there? Hundreds and thousands of people who reach 100. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, it was a handful. Poor yes. Queen, you know, I mean, signing all those cards when I when I first started my nurse training Louis in 1977 and I was working on the older people's wards which in those days were called geriatric wards you know people in there were usually in there because they'd had massive strokes and they would be in their early to mid 70s that was old age in the seventh in 1977 now um, you know, you don't think about people being old until they get 85. And in care homes, the average age in care homes, I think, is somewhere somewhere about 87, 88, 90 years old. And people are living independently for so much longer. That's a great celebration of the better health that we've had. But a consequence of that is as you get older, your heart starts failing, your kidneys start failing. Your muscle waste, your muscles start yeah. wasting. We know those things happen. The, it, there is an increased risk that your brain will start failing. Okay. It follows logically, really. Yeah, yeah. You think about it. Does. But, but what we also have to bear in mind is that just because you are old, or the person is older and is eighty-five or ninety years old, does not mean they're going to have dementia. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing to bear in mind is that people will have normal ageing cognitive decline. So just because someone can't remember the name of something does not mean they've got dementia, which is what I constantly have to keep telling myself every time my husband, who's 85 at the end of this month, can't remember something. And I'm like, oh my God, he's got dementia. But I think, no, actually, because eventually he's like, uh, let me just work this out. Oh, yes, that's where it is. Right. Or that's the name. So there are things that have to take longer when your brain is older. So, um, you know, it's, and how many times, I mean, I've lost a ring at the moment. I've got a clue where it is. I haven't got a clue. It's somewhere in the house. doesn't mean I've got dementia. It means I've yeah. put it down somewhere I don't know where it is. So we have to also, we all, you know, we do things, don't we? Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're younger, you don't think, oh, that means I've got dementia. You just think, blimey, what have I done with it? But when someone's 85, you think, oh, that's a sign they've got dementia. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> it's a sign they're human. <laughs> so it's, you know, 
but that's easier said than done because I'm forever automatically thinking, poor John, he's got dementia because he's can't poor remember. And then he, he knows where things he knows where things are far better than I do, and I'm forever yeah. losing things in my office. John comes up and there it is. Look, it's there. Oh yeah, I didn't see it. So <laughs> you know, we have to oh, poor John. remember these. Poor John. <laughs> poor old John. Um, Lynn, where this um, where most of us will have if we've heard of Montessori, probably connected it to places like nurseries or ways in which uh, we teach children. How has, what have you done to bring that into care homes uh, around the world now? Well, I actually um, am very new to using Montessori methods for people with dementia. And I came across it when I was working in Australia three years ago uh, on something different. And, um, and I found it very interesting. And what, what, we've, what we've actually done now is um, you can go to my website, Louis, which is dementiathemontessoriway.co.uk, little plug there, um, and people can read more about it. That's where they'll find our books as well. Um, another little plug. And thank you for that free plug, Louis. Um, but basically, it's really, really interesting because it is about... So the Montessori way is not about treating people like children. That is absolutely what it is not. What it's doing is taking the work of Maria Montessori of how it applies to adults, because what she identified was how you learn and what, how you can work with people who traditionally they didn't think could, could learn. And she did her work with, with children who today we would call severely uh, children with severe learning disabilities um they weren't called that in victorian times but that's what that's the group of people she worked with and she identified that we need to think about things being ordered that the environment needs to be prepared so that it's so when i was talking earlier about signs that's preparing the environment to succeed Brilliant. You know, so how do we help somebody? How do we prepare this environment so that they can succeed? How do we make the environment beautiful and um, make it and conducive to making people feel relaxed? So having blaring music going and flashing lights, you know, might be great for you at your age, but it's not great for me and wouldn't be great for someone with dementia. So it's how do we make the, you know, how do we make it feel beautiful? How do we make it feel calm? How do we make it uncluttered? Yeah. Because at that processing, remember I talked about having too much information? So it's got to be uncluttered. But then also what's really important is thinking about those human tendencies. What makes us human? having a reason to get up in the morning, having a sense of purpose, feeling that you belong, that sense of community, that sense of achievement. These are all human tendencies. So applying those to dementia, applying those Montessori principles to dementia enables people to, 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 to feel valued. So, in one of the care homes that I work with in Derbyshire, we've got a lady who used to work in Marks and Spencers. And in the care home in Ashbourne Lodge, they've got a shop, a resident shop. It's a proper shop, resident shop where they can, you know, you can get soap and deodorant and that sort of stuff. So what they do now with this lady, I'll, I'll call her Mary, is that 
they have one of each item on the shelves and they say to Mary, oh, Mary, would you wonder if you would help us? We've had a delivery come in and the shop needs restocking. So Mary, happy to help because she learned, she was working in Marks and Spencers for 30 years. So she's yeah. used to being in that environment. Mary goes in and she meticulously picks up each item. Now she can't, she's lost the ability to work out where to put things for herself. So they've prepared the environment by leaving one up of each item. Cool. So what she's doing is matching. And she's doing that every day. Now the sad reality is that Mary can't remember that she did it. Right? So she does it, looks beautiful. They thank her for helping. She's got that sense of achievement, that sense of satisfaction. She goes and sits down. In the middle of the night, when Mary's in bed asleep, the night staff take all the stuff off again because she can't remember that she did it. So actually, they can turn that into a positive. And Mary can do that every day. We've got another lady in the same home. I'll call her Doris. She folds. She folds tablecloths. She folds towels. She folds serviettes. So Doris has now got a table in the laundry. And when the laundry staff are in there, they ask her if she could help them sort things out. And she goes and she sits down there and she folds socks and she folds. She sits there and folds in the laundry. And what else is she doing? Chat, 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 chat. She then pushes the trolley with the laundry staff around the home, delivering the laundry. Gives her a sense of purpose, gives her exercise, helps build her appetite. She's had all that conversation and reminiscence. And what else it does is it makes the staff feel valued. Yes. Because they're not just laundry staff. Yes. They are, they are equally important to, as, 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 because you're part of a jigsaw. You're not, the lowest of the low, you're all equally important because you're part of that jigsaw of care and support. So those are just two tiny examples, really, of how we, we've started to use the Montessori approach. And we're, by labelling, we've got now people eating things. They used to have a bowl of fruit up in the, in the most care homes, decent care homes, always have fruit out for people to help themselves. People with dementia can't remember that they're entitled to help themselves to it. We're very British, aren't we, Louis? We don't take things that don't belong to us. You know what it's like when you go to someone's house and you're sitting there and they've got a plate of biscuits and you're thinking, those biscuits look very nice, but you don't touch them, do you? Because you've not offered. It's very naughty. You were trained like that. Your mother trained you, didn't she? Not to take until you were invited. Very British. So you've got a bowl of fruit sitting in the care home. People can't remember that they can help themselves. So the fruit never used to get touched. So what did what did we do? They put a, we put a sign next to it. Please take a piece of fruit. It invited the person to take a piece of fruit. The chef tells me he has to refill that fruit bowl five times a week. No yeah. word of a lie. <laughs> Simply by preparing the environment, Brilliant. nice clear signage and nice wording inviting people. So do you think this is going to be a method that is adopted more and more throughout the UK? I'd love it to be. I'd love it to be. I mean, we're working very, it's very small at the moment. And uh, there's only myself and my colleague, Sally, um, that are doing it. But um, where where it has been implemented, it, it's absolutely, you know, making a huge difference. And we've also 
the methods can be used by people at home in their own homes as well. Yes. You know, it's not just in care homes. You can, those, all those things I've been talking about today are all Montessori approaches, but you could do them in your own home, making an environment dementia friendly, you know, making the, making a gym dementia friendly. It's about how we do it. It can apply anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. So it's very oh. exciting and giving me, giving me a new lease of life. It's, it's really exciting and I'm looking forward to and we will I'll, I'll get some links off you afterwards as well I can put them in the show notes to to get people to sort of follow your work as well um, but before we do that are there any other misconceptions that you think are quite prevalent in the conversation around dementia that you'd like to address I know you've done that a lot already yeah don't assume that people don't have um, can't make decisions for themselves by law you must assume they can make a decision uh, in England and Wales and Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland have their own laws, but they're all based. So we've all got different laws, but they're all basically saying the same thing. That do not a diagnosis of dementia does not mean someone doesn't have the right to make decisions. They right. do. Okay, and they do until you discover that they can't make those decisions. But I, what a practical step I would recommend people do that we all should do it, Louis. You, me, everybody we should take out, uh, put in place what's called a lasting power of attorney. That would apply whether you had a car crash or whether you've got dementia. If you remain mentally well, um, it, it never comes into force. But let's, you know, let's just think for a moment and, and, and the worst thing happens, you're driving today and a terrible thing happens, God willing, it never does, but you're driving, you have a car crash, you end up in intensive care, right? You've got bills to pay, your partner is not, you haven't got a joint bank account, you haven't got a lasting power of attorney set up. Your partner cannot access your bank account, cannot pay your bills, and cannot make medical decisions on your behalf. The doctors will ask, well, what do you think we should do with Louis? You know, should we do this or should we do that to get their view? But they could, they do not legally, your partner hasn't legally got the right to say, uh, I consent to Louis having this operation, for yeah. example. So a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare and for finance are something that we should all put in place. Every one of us because none of us know when we're going to be run over by a bus. Um, but in terms of dementia, while the person is still able to do it, put it in place. It's an insurance policy. They're, they're, they're quite reasonably priced now. I think it's about 70 quid. You don't need to use a solicitor. You can download the forms and you can organise it. And it might well be that you organise it and they never, they never get used because the person's always able to give that, in, to give that, uh, make those decisions for themselves. But if they get to the point whereby they're not able to make decisions about important things, they have already given the legal permission to. So let's say, let me say, I've, I've signed over to you that you're my. Uh, uh, attorney if I lose capacity right so I've got dementia you're my person and I've got to go in and the doctor says well really she needs a hip replacement 
I can't give consent because I've got, you know, I'm a long way down the journey with my dementia. You, as my attorney, would be the one that signs that consent form or makes that decision. Yes, I think she should have this hip replacement because you become me. So you you think what is in my best interest? Um, now you wouldn't be able to say, oh, I don't think she should have that hip replacement because actually, if she doesn't have that hip replacement, she'll die quicker, and then I'll get my hands on her money. You know, yeah, someone yeah. would say, is he really working in her yeah, best yeah. interest? Um, and so there are safeguards in place to stop that happening. Cool. Um, but it's a very important thing because there's nothing more distressing, and this is the sort of work I do for the court of protection, you know, where you get to a situation where someone's in a care home, difficult decisions have to be made, or someone is uh, at home and there's debate about whether they should go into a care home and there's no lasting power of attorney in place and there's no one to be making those decisions. So I would strongly recommend that that is something very practical we should all do you know, just in case you get run over by a bus, like making a will, you know, we hope it doesn't get used for another 50 years, but we should yeah. all have one. We should all have lasting powers of attorney in place, but particularly if someone's been diagnosed with dementia, um, <clears throat> they should get it sorted out whilst they're still mentally able to. That's great advice. That is great advice. Um, yeah. Lynn, on a, on a lighter note, <laughs> on a lighter note, where can, and as I said, we'll put this in the show notes, but where can people find you and your work? And you've got a Twitter um, handle. My, you've got a Twitter handle. I've got a Twitter handle. That's a bit of a complicated question to ask me. Um, what is my Twitter handle? Oh, Lynn, you can send me the link. You can send me the link to it. I'll send you the link. I'll send you the link, and I'll send you the link to um the websites as well for dementia uh, dementia the montessori way cool. is the website um about dementia and then my other work around um uh, expert witness and safeguarding is on linfair linfair consulting limited so i'm a two website person and we've got a Facebook page, which we've just set up for Dementia the Montessori Way Facebook page, which we, we've literally just um, launched it in the last two or three weeks. So we'd be very pleased if people started following that. Yes. Because I think we've got about, we've got about one person that follows it at the moment. So, send me these um, links. Send me these links. Uh, you know, so, and there'll be lots of ideas. So I'll send you, I will send you that so that you've got the website, websites, Twitter and the Facebook page. And Lynn, if I was to give you an extra two hours a day, what would you do with that time? I'd go away in my motorhome, Louis. I'd go, I'd park it up somewhere and I'd be in my motorhome. And then I'd be with my grandson going out on bike rides and cooking on my African cooking stove. Wow, that was cool. That's what I'd be doing with an extra two hours a day. I think that's one of the most confident, like, thought of fantastic answers I've ever had to that question. That was lovely. That was really oh, nice. Indora, that's the motorhome's name, isn't it? Indora. Sorry it's not that I'd be spending two more hours in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's what you mean, really. And that's what you mean. In the motorhome with your dumbbells. <laughs> Yes, of course. Lynn, thank you so much. Honestly, that's been a total pleasure. And I'm like, 
it was a really uh, lovely experience to be taught so well with so many fantastic anecdotes and analogies um, and just super coherent, um, which is, it's obviously a super high level knowledge you've got, but you really made that understandable. And also, um, I'm fortunate enough to not have um, experienced dementia in anyone super close to me, um, but I know that so many people do, and I know that I no doubt will do, and anyone who has experienced it in whatever capacity, there was so much useful knowledge in everything you've said. So super grateful. Thank, Thank you. Well, thank you, Louis, and it's been a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully if it gives anybody a little bit of a nugget of, of hope as well, of hope that, you know, we do say, I mean, it's devastating diagnosis, devastating thing to have. My dad lived with it for 12 years. I've lived with the grief. Um, I know what it's like from both sides of the fence, um, but there is hope, and um, there's hope that you can still have a good life and do lots of great things and create memories. That's the big thing, really. Make memories. Make memories for yourself, even if the person themselves can't remember it. That's the most important thing. I'll write that one down. That's it. That is it. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Holy smokes. I knew Lynn coming onto the podcast was going to be an educational experience and we were going to learn more, much more about the understanding behind dementia. I didn't quite appreciate how much we were going to learn about the care and not only the care of dementia, but actually that there are so many practical things that we can do if we are exposed around, or we've got a friend, a family or relative of someone suffering with dementia. As is often the case, that podcast to me had such a positive and practical undertone. And I know that's a huge, that will be massively a part of um, Lynn's demeanor and positivity. But I think if you are listening to this and you're someone uh, who is exposed to uh, dementia, I really hope that you were able to take that positive undertone from it and there were some practical examples of support there. And if not, um, Lynn's website will be in the, um, the show notes here so you could absolutely reach out via that. But I'm so grateful for you guys listening. I, I've always said it, I'm massive. you are the purpose and the reason behind this. So grateful to be able to uh, do this and get the opportunity to speak to people who are talented, experienced or professionals in their field and that we can explore this all together and that you guys are invested in understanding all of these things as well. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You know you rock. And I'll speak to you on the next podcast. Pow.